right? We got a lot of different things coming at you today, okay? And I'm just sensing a little bit of a lull right now. That. We don't got time for that. Alright? Let's go. Break it. Break it, Glenn Cross! Woo! Ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your attention? I've just been handed an urgent and horrifying news story. And I need all of you to stop what you're doing and listen. You're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk with Derek Johnson on FM 1017 and 1320 LWN. Yo, yo, yo. I, I will never say that again. Uh, anyway, because uh, that, was, that was pretty awkward. Anyway, uh, this is not Derek Johnson. This is Blaine Gillespie. But this is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017 KLWN. On this Wednesday afternoon, we got a good show for you coming up this afternoon. First of all, I'm going to talk a little bit about a new hire, and we'll let you know who that new hire is. And it's not a KLWN hire. It's it's kind of a, a much uh, much bigger deal, but uh, moving on. Still got some best of RCST trivia for you today. Going to finish off the second round and get into the sizzling 16 as we replay you the RCST trivia matchups. Top of the 4 o'clock hour, we'll talk a little bit about the Kansas City Royals and the uh, crapshoot that is, and uh, especially with the Carlos Santana trade coming a day ago, which didn't have a chance to talk about it yesterday. We'll talk about that in length today. Uh, The top of the 5 o'clock hour, we'll have the top 10 plays by Kansas basketball in the Elite Eight against Miami, which led them to their 16th Final Four in school history. And then at around 5.30, we will have an update on a pretty big tennis tournament going on right now. You may have heard of it. It's uh, Wimbledon going on in the UK. So that's our show for today. First off, new hire. Well, Lane, who is it? Who will he work for? And Yeah, it's a he. Uh, who will he work for? And uh, what's his name? Big 12 has hired a new commissioner. Brett Yormark will replace Bob Bullsby, presumably on the 1st of August. You know, we still have to make sure that there's a mutual agreement between Brett Yormark and Bob Bullsby, which more than likely there will be. I, I I mean, that would be one heck of a news story if they just decide, you know what? No, I don't want you to become the new Big 12 commissioner. But uh, that is the plan right now is for Brett Yormark to be the fifth commissioner in the history of the Big 12 since its foundation back in 1996. And he has had a lot of praise, but... You know, it kind of does also raise the question, why this guy? Well, I'll give you a little bit about his background. He's had some work in the NBA with NASCAR and most recently with an organization founded by a pretty popular musician. And I'll get more into detail in a second. But first of all, I want to read you a quote from NBA Commissioner Adam Silver. Talking about Brett Yormark, he said, Brett is one of the most skilled and knowledgeable executives in sports and entertainment, saying, quote, his decades of operational experience, relentless work ethic, and strong industry relationships will be of enormous value to the Big 12, its school, and its fans, end quote. So prior to the Big 12, just uh, the most recently, he was the chief operating officer and the co-CEO of Rock Nation. That's ROC, no K, just ROC. And it was an organization founded by Jay-Z, known uh, hip-hop 
a musician, a well-known hip-hop musician uh, from Brooklyn. It was a company that handles global licensing and branding opportunities. So this does raise the question with them bringing in a guy who most recently wasn't a commissioner of a sporting event, although Rock Nation does help with athletes. They've had guys like Robinson Cano and LaMelo Ball. Um, so this, especially for younger guys and a lot newer athletes is um, kind of what their, I wouldn't say their main focus, but it is one of their focuses. Um, but anyway, so why, and it, I raise the question, why do they bring somebody who was most recently a co-CEO of an organization founded by a musician? Is it just because of branding and getting those uh, opportunities for uh global light for not quite global licensing but licensing in general getting licensing and brand opportunities it's quite possible you know he could uh bring in a big time corporation to give the big 12 a bunch of money and in return that could really help out with the distribution of money to all the big 12 schools to make them a more profitable conference it is quite possible but he has had a lot of experience with sports outside of with rock nation more, uh, just right before he was at Rock Nation, he was the CEO of the Nets NBA organization and the CEO of the Barclays Center, which is in Brooklyn. And he oversaw the Nets move from New Jersey to Brooklyn. Not a far move, but a move nonetheless. But prior to that, he was a vice president of corporate sponsorships of NASCAR. And in the early 2000s, he oversaw a 700 $50 million corporate partnership with Nextel Communications to give them the naming rights of their cup series. Because if you if you know NASCAR, there are, well, there's three major ones. There might be a fourth. Or I don't know if they got rid of it, but there's the truck series, the, I guess you could call it the secondary series, and then the cup series. At that point, it was the largest partnership in history, $750 million with Nextel Communications. And the naming rights for four seasons of NASCAR. So if you remember, if you're a NASCAR fan, it was the uh, NASCAR Nextel Cup Series. And uh, it, the reason that the name was moved, well, it's because it wasn't because, you know, they were bought out because Next Up was Sprint. Well, it wasn't because uh, Sprint bought out the naming rights to NASCAR. It's because Nextel merged with Sprint in 2006. So Sprint kind of became the main corporation and I, I mean, you could say when it by merged, quote unquote, they probably bought out Nextel. But I digress. It was renamed to the Sprint Cup in 2008, and it was that for many, many seasons. Uh, which now I, I totally forget what the name is now, but it's not Sprint anymore. And even then, it wouldn't be because T-Mobile or Sprint merged with T-Mobile. So now it's T-Mobile over Sprint. Sprint barely doesn't even exist anymore. It's just T-Mobile. And a prime example of that is the Sprint Center in Kansas City moving to the T-Mobile Center. Well, it's because Sprint merged with T-Mobile, and Sprint doesn't exist anymore. It's just T-Mobile. I digress. But he was, I think the point that I'm trying to make, and I know I, I'm just spurting out tangents, you know, about, you know, NASCAR and everything like that and how he helped out. My point is how he helped out. And he gave a $750 million corporate sponsorship with NASCAR. 
Um, so he's recognized a great deal for his creative uh, business approaches. Very creative. And I, I think the point of this hire is for that branding and those uh, corporate sponsorships, quite possibly. I mean, probably not as high as $750 million for a college conference, but still, if he could pull that off, I think that that could really expand. I'm not, okay, I say expand uh, the conference, but I'm sure a lot of people kind of just want to keep it at 12 teams, and I totally understand that, and I'm the same way. Right now, it's at 10. It's going to be 14 for a couple of years, and then it'll drop back down to 12. Um, but the point is, like, with those uh, corporate sponsorships, it's able to give the Big 12 more money. And the more money that the Big 12 gets, the more money that each of the schools get because the Big 12 pays all the schools, and they distribute it equally. So the more money the schools get, the better that they can make their athletic um, programs like new facilities, which I know for KU, that's an eye opener. If they're able to get more money from the big 12, they could use that money for new facilities for quite possibly football and baseball, which I think are the two sports that need it the most and maybe swimming as well, swimming and diving. Um, so that I think if that is the case, if you're a KU fan, you're happy right now. You are ecstatic because let's face it, you know, you may not be a baseball fan, but a lot of people around here are football fans. I think I heard a survey. It's like 85% of people around here are football fans and you may not be a Kansas football fan, but if you are, you're just hanging in there because you know that this uh, team can turn it around. This program can turn it around, but over the last decade could not, could not show it. However, one of the talks about the Kansas football program has been getting not quite a new facility, but making it a lot better, making it Memorial Stadium a lot better than it is right now. Because I, I, I think it's, I don't think there's a doubt in anyone's mind out of the entire conference, the entire Big 12, that Kansas has the worst football facilities. Heck, they didn't have an indoor practice facility until three years ago. And they were the last team, or three or four years ago, they were the last team in the Big 12 to get an indoor practice facility. Everyone else had one. KU did not. They finally got one. Did help out with their facilities. But uh, the stadium where they play their games, you know, you have to appeal to the recruits. And I think that is where the focus may go. That is if Kansas gets more money based off of potential corporate sponsorships that uh, Brett Yormark can bring to the Big 12. And yeah, they I'm not saying they'll lose money out of the gate, but you know, in a couple of years' time, they're now going to have to distribute to 14 schools rather than 10 because, well, I'm assuming 14 because we still don't know the, um, the plans that Oklahoma and Texas are going to have for when they're going to leave the Big 12 for the SEC. But in about a year or two, BYU, UCF, Houston, and Cincinnati will be in the Big 12. So, what what ultimately does this mean for the Big 12? And not, and not only that, what does this mean for Bob Bowlesby? Uh, well, he was hired in 2012. He was hired right after the departure of Missouri, Texas A&M, Nebraska, and Colorado. And they brought in West Virginia and TCU to try to fill in those voids. But you fall from 12 to 10 
and you're named the Big 12, it kind of doesn't make sense. And it's a decent conference, but if you want to be a big conference, well, you need more than 10 teams, in my opinion. The SEC, I think, has 14, which now they're going to expand, of course, but still. It was a key point. He was a uh, key part in bringing in those four teams, BYU, UCF, Houston, Cincinnati, after they could not reach an agreement with Oklahoma and Texas, and they decided to move to the SEC. And, you know, the obvious thing is, well, you can't really have a big-time conference like the Big 12 and only have eight teams. You know, that's it's kind of unheard of to be a power conference and only have eight teams. You know, you have to have at least 10. You have to have at least 10, at least 12 at that, that would be, you know, a good step. You know, the ACC, I don't remember how many exactly the ACC has. Um, Definitely between 10 and 15. And the same goes for the ACC. I just said the ACC. Uh, the uh, the Pac-12, the SEC. Uh, I think the Big East, I'm not sure. I'm forgetting a conference, but I digress. Um, It doesn't matter. that Because I'm, I'm going on a tangent. But basically, my point is that now we're getting into a new era of the Big 12, which I think you could call it the second era where there will be 12 teams. And that era is going to fall to your mark. He's going to have one season where there'll be 10 teams. And then, bam, just like that, 14. And then down to 12 whenever Oklahoma and Texas leave. So now, it was Bullsby's... Um, job to set up the new Big 12. And now it's your Mark's turn to make it thrive again. Because let's face it, if you combine the three major sports, football, basketball, and baseball, the Big 12 is far from the best. Far from it. Yeah, usually they're the best in one sport, and that's mostly basketball and baseball. And we all know nobody, no conference has a better football uh, conference than the SEC. And time and again, time and again, that also is the same for baseball. And yeah, you can, and in most in most years, the Big 12 has had the best basketball. But basketball is not what makes the most money. Football does. You can look at any program that includes KU, where a you have a struggling football program, but then a basketball program that just won a national championship. Football, no matter who you are, makes the most money. Because, well, this country likes football that damn much. And so do sponsorships. And you bring in more fans. And yeah, you have more players to deal with in football than basketball and baseball. But you bring in a lot more fans, a lot more corporate sponsorships, and that's what makes you the most money. So in essence, football is what brings in the most. However, we've seen... Time and again, Big 12 is not the best football conference. Yeah, Oklahoma's a football powerhouse. Yeah, Texas has been, even though Kansas beat them twice over the past six years. But historically, yes, Texas is a football powerhouse, but they're not going to be here in four years. So you have to deal with, you know, the recent, I don't know if you could say the recent football powerhouses, but you have great programs historically, especially recently historically, in in Baylor, Iowa State, Kansas State, as much as we hate to say it, Kansas State historically has a decent football program. 
You also have Oklahoma State staying in the Big 12. Texas Tech, heck, they had Patrick Mahomes. TCU, decent sometimes. Other years, not quite. And then you fall to KU, the back burner of Big 12 football for the past decade and a half, uh, since 2008. I mean, you could also say 2009. I think they, I don't remember if they finished last in 2009, but they were pretty dang close if they didn't. Um, but they've been pretty darn terrible for the past decade. West Virginia, hit and miss. Um, that was the one team I was forgetting was West Virginia. But, yeah, they've been hit and miss. I would say probably the best prospect that they brought was Geno Smith. And they, he didn't really turn out that great in the NFL, but I digress. Kansas football over the last decade and a half has not been great. So you combine all those teams together. And, you know, you even think about the jokes of who's the worst SEC team, who's the worst team in the Big 12, and when they battle it out, who would win? That would be Kansas versus Vanderbilt, and Vanderbilt would probably win all day. I'm, I'm not going to lie to you. Vanderbilt would probably win, I would say, about 6 or 7 out of 10. It wouldn't be 9 out of 10, but it would probably be 6 or 7. Anyway, my point is when you run a Power 5 conference, the objective is to be the best. Big 12, not that at all. Your mark by bringing in corporate sponsorships, by expanding TV rights, which I'll get more into in a second, and by bringing these teams in and helping them thrive could make the Big 12 the best damn conference in the country give 10 years time. I think that is a possibility. And, you know, if you obviously some of that has to do with talent, but what it does stem from is money. And you hate to see that, especially we're in the days of NIL, but you hate to say it, but it's true. It stems from money. Why? Well, the teams that have the most money get the best recruits. Why? Because they have the best facilities. Why? Because they have the most money. They have the most money to put into those facilities. KU is one of those teams that has not had the best facilities. And there are a couple around there in the Big 12 who have not had the best. Because you could argue, I don't, I don't even know if I want to throw schools out there. Baylor hit and miss. I've, I've seen their stadium. It's not bad. It's not the best, but it's not bad. Uh, West Virginia hit and miss as well. Iowa State as well. Not the best in the country, but decent. KU's terrible. It's dog water. But if you are able to get corporate sponsorships and expand TV rights to give those teams that money, then bring in better recruits, perform better, make the Big 12 probably the most competitive conference in all three major sports, and ultimately make the Big 12 the best conference in the country. It's just not the case right now. The SEC is by a mile. Now, uh, what I mean by TV rights. So earlier today, I was at the Kansas Association of Broadcasters Sports Seminar. And one of the questions asked to Brian Haney, a friend of the show, uh, voice of Kansas, uh, the voice of the Jayhawks, and uh, the voice of K-State, Wyatt Thompson, because they were both on stage together. Um, they were asked about the new commissioner. Wyatt Thompson came in and said if, if he could expand TV rights, I don't see why the Big 12 could not get better. And I, I agree. If you think about the TV rights, what do they have now? Well, most games are broadcast on ESPN. And you have the Big 12 now on ESPN+. Plus, but you have, t you have conferences like the SEC, 
the ACC, the Pac-12, they have their own networks where if you purchase like the ultimate package uh, for a cable provider or a TV provider, satellite provider, you can get those channels. Does the Big 12 have that? No. Can they build that? Yes. Because if the SEC can and the ACC can, why can't the Big 12? Because what they do ultimately, and I had a talk with Joel Becker, our program director here at KLWN. What they can do is just basically what the SEC did. They kind of build it off of ESPN, but make it their own station. What I mean by that is it's it's hosted by ESPN. It's ultimately, you know, their TV station. It's ultimately theirs. They own it but it's to broadcast the SEC. Why can't the Big 12 do the same? They can. And in my opinion, they should. Because yeah, time and again, people are complaining about ESPN Plus. And yeah, also time and again, people are going to complain that you need the ultimate package to get the Big 12. Let's say it's called the Big 12 Network. I think if you're still able to expand those TV rights, you can earn more money and really help out the conference in a big way. So, is Brett Yormark a key hire? Well, I don't know because um, I'm optimistic, especially about the new era that the Big 12 is going to be. It's going to be competitive. I don't think there's a doubt about that. The Big 12 is going to be competitive in, without a doubt, football and basketball and maybe baseball as well. The Big 12 is going to be competitive. But I think if you could bring in sponsorships, uh, television rights, partnerships to draw more people to the Big 12, I think it can really thrive, and it could be the best conference in the country. So can Brett Yormark do it? We'll have to see. This is Lane Gillespie. We'll have best of RCST trivia for you on the other end of this break. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017-1320-KLWN. Depend on it. Would you like to get involved in sponsoring Rock Chalk Sports Talk or the Best of RCST podcast? How about getting involved in some KU action or local high school sports? You can reach out to us, djohnson at gpmnow.com. That's djohnson at gpmnow.com, and we'll see what we can do to help out your business and get involved here in local sports. Well, hello again. Fancy seeing you here once more. This is Lane Gillespie, not Derek Johnson. Derek's still in Germany. So, yeah, on vacation. And uh, that brings us to the top of the 4 o'clock hour. What are we going to talk about? Oh, there's a franchise pretty close to here um, that is, well, not doing as great as many would have hoped. Uh, you know, hoping that they definitely would have been a, a lot better. That's the Kansas City Royals. Uh, today, though, they did win. Uh, they had a 1 o'clock game today, uh, one ten to be exact. It was the uh, final game against the Texas Rangers. They're going to have tomorrow off before, well, tomorrow's going to be a travel day. They're going to travel to Detroit. They won 2-1 to one, thanks to a go-ahead home run by Kyle Isbell uh, winning the game. Or that was, I mean, it was in the, uh, it was in the fifth inning, but it was still, uh, did still say 2-1 to one for the uh, remainder of uh, of the game. So two to one final score, the Royals win 
And uh, yeah, still cover one of the worst teams in the MLB, 27 and 47. But there was some big news that came out uh, the other day, actually yesterday. It was either yesterday or two days ago. And I meant to talk about it, but a lot of other stuff to focus on, so I didn't quite get to it. Uh, Carlos Santana traded to Seattle in exchange for two pitchers, being Wyatt Mills and Will Fleming. And what's interesting is Carlos Santana was starting to get hot. Uh, I'm trying to pull up his stats, but for whatever reason, this uh, computer that I'm using is not doing so well. Uh, but I'm, I'm going to do my best and um, try to get you some of his stats. But basically, what I'm trying to get at once this thing decides to freaking work. Uh, sorry, I hate technology. It's my best friend and my worst enemy. It's my best friend because, you know, I'd be able to... Uh, Give, uh, I'd be able to do the show right now. It's my worst enemy because of what's going on right now. So, anyway, uh, back to task. Anyway, Carlos Santana traded for two pitchers. Yeah, pitching staff hit and miss uh, for the Royals. Today did pretty well. Uh, Zach Greinke got the start, got the win, and what was his 500th career start. So, congrats to Zach Greinke, 500th career start, and he's able to rack up the win. Moves him to 2-4 and four on the season. Uh, but yeah, Kyle Isbell home run in the fifth inning. So two home runs in each of the last two games. Uh, that's combined, not each. Uh, but uh, I said each of the last, didn't I? Uh, two combined home runs in the last two games. Still pretty good for Kyle Isbell. One of the things to um, watch for was this was the second game of the career of Vinny Pascatino, 24-year-old first baseman. He's coming in replacing Carlos Santana. Because of the trade. Still yet to get a hit. Still yet to get his first career hit. But uh, he did walk twice today. So, and I've heard a lot of potential about this guy. You know, he um, he's only had uh, four at, uh, he's only had uh, five at-bats on the year. Um, and this is the second game he's played. And they've all been walks. Or not, not all of them. But he's gone on two times and they've both been walks. Both times he's been on base have been walks. He has not had a, uh, he has not had a hit yet. So basically, that's the uh, that's the thing. That's the thing to watch out for. So, um, you know, he could be a pretty good talent moving forward, but uh, we're gonna we're gonna have to see. But the trade with uh, Carlos Santana basically is what I was trying to get at. Um, it was interesting just because he was starting to get hot at the right moment. There was a good chunk of the season where he was sub two hundred, actually. I'd honestly say it was about 160s or something like that. But uh, his he uh, bumped his average up to, I believe it was about 213. Uh, then gets traded. They say, you're out of here, Carlos. And he was a guy that came in a couple of years ago, filled in a big hole uh, for the Royals. Definitely needed him uh, because they needed a first baseman at the time. And, um, you know, they got him. And he was, a, at the time, it seemed like he was going to be a decent get. But, uh didn't really do as well as we would hoped. I mean, his uh, batting average, I will say his, um, okay, no, never mind. I was looking at the wrong thing. His batting average a season ago ended up being 214, 216 uh, right now, to, or when he closed off with the Royals and uh, then eventually just, yeah, now traded to Seattle. I think he played his first game today or yesterday, one or the other, um, but got an offer. But uh, still, 
it's it's an interesting trade in my opinion because one guy that has been in the trade talks quite a bit over the past few weeks has been Andrew Benintendi. You know, he's another guy that you know was starting to get hot and they don't, they don't trade him. He's he still has a lot of value to some other teams. So why not, you know, trade Andrew Benintendi to try to get some uh, good prospects our way uh, our way, excuse me. You know, if you're the Royals, you uh, you kind of want to you you, you kind of want to think that, but you do get Carl. You do uh, get rid of Carlos Santana. I'm not okay. I'm not saying it's a bad trade. It because in my mind, I I don't think. I'm just saying it could have been better, as I think is what I'm trying to say. So that's just the thing. I think the only thing that's keeping Andrew Benintendi alive is that he leads the team in batting average with a 305. But I know that there were a lot of trade talks out there. Uh, for Benintendi to try to bring in uh, some more prospects. Doesn't quite happen. Uh, but, uh, you know, maybe, uh, I mean, the, the trade deadline isn't still isn't for a little while. So it's quite possible that, um, you know, he might be the guy, like one of the guys moving forward. They'll probably keep him. Uh, the Royals will, Royals will probably keep him. Wouldn't be surprised. I mean, but like the team in general needs to figure out ways to produce runs and get better. I know that's such a no duh thing to say. It's so obvious, but you get what I mean. But the fact that their offense has a 238 combined batting average, which isn't bad, but definitely not great. It's definitely, definitely not great. Um, and then their pitching has been very lackluster. Um, Pulling up the RA right now. It's 505. That's not good for a team. ERA, 505. That's not good uh, for a team. Especially when uh, the team, the pitcher with the best ERA, as I'm trying to... Uh, technology's not being nice to me again. Here we go. The best ERA by one pitcher... Let's go with one that counts because the the one that's at the top has only pitched four innings. That's Daniel Mangdon. He's only pitched four and a third innings. But Scott Barlow, uh, the closer on the team with a two fourteen earned run average. If you if you have a uh, really good team, uh, your closer's ERA needs to be around one at most. That's just the issue. Um, but. I mean, I'm not saying too bad. I'm saying you know when you have a when you have a great team, you want your ERA to be around one ish. So it's not if if you're taking anything away from what I'm saying, the Royals are kind of looking grim. So basically, it brings up the question of what's next. Um, and the answer, plain and simple, is we don't know. Uh, do these pitchers that the Royals picked up? Um, do they actually bring something to the table? Will they actually bring something to the table? Um, and you know, can they help the Royals start to get in a winning edge once again? the The issue is we're, you know, seventy four games of the season. It's not halfway, yet, but it's pretty darn close. And the Royals have one of the worst records, um, in the MLB. I think it's second to worst, uh, just ahead of the Oakland A's. Um. So they got a pair of right-handers being Wyatt Mills and Will, uh, William Fleming that came on Monday. Uh, and it did bring up Vinny Pascantino, who, uh, like I said, has not gotten a hit yet, but 
You know, we heard a lot about him. He was getting really hot in, uh, in the minors, I believe in Omaha. So uh, they decided to bring him up, uh, which he didn't start on Monday because, because of travel. But he did start today. Uh, he walked twice, 0 for 1 total, uh, walked twice. Um, so with that, um, basically, who wins the trade? It's just my question. And as of right now, it's Seattle because you have a guy that's starting to get hot. And heck, one of the pitchers, that being uh, Fleming. Well, actually, so Mills, uh, Wyatt Mills optioned him to AAA Omaha and then Fleming to Class A Quad Cities. So they're not even going to be, you know, major league prospects right out of the gate. Uh, you know, so basically... What they do is they got their guys, put them down in, in the minor leagues, and bring up uh, Vinny Pasquino. Obviously, time will tell how this goes. Um, but uh, you know, Scott Cervea said, you know, he, um, you know, he always jokes around that like he's a Mariner, even though he never played with them. I believe, unless he did like really early, but still, um, it just, uh, it, it's just a question of. Honestly, at this point, I'm just kind of, I'm just trying to figure out the question of what would a really great trade be to bring this team back on track. I don't know if there is one that is possible, in my opinion. We're trying to, um, you, you know, there's a lot of young talent now on this team with Bobby Witt, MJ Melendez, and now Vinny Pascantino. Um, all trying to find their mark in the MLB. Um, but with a franchise that's been struggling recently, it's just tough, you know? Uh, so it's, it's basically just a, a question of trying to figure out, uh, you know, how can, how can they work out this trade and where can it go? Um, especially with Carlos Santana, you know, in June he hit 357. That's, that's the issue. Um, and that's the issue of, you know, him not, uh, not any longer being, uh, with the, uh, with the Royals. And one of the reasons they got Santana is because Ty France, um, who was an option at first base, you know, he was injured. So they decide, they decide to get a guy who's been borderline hot over the past month to try to get them back in their winning right ways. And the Mariners have been pretty decent this year. So that's just the thing. And they were in search of a switch hitter as well and an option at first base uh, because Ty France got hurt with his elbow injury, and they definitely got that with Carlos Santana. So I, I see, you know, without a doubt, um, Seattle definitely wins that trade. Um, and also bear in mind, uh, so the Royals had Santana on a two year, 17 and a half million dollar deal, which was not followed through completely with the trade, which means Kansas city has to pay Seattle four point, almost $4.3 million. Uh, and then the Mariners will play, uh, will pay 1.5 million to, uh, Carlos Santana. So you're also losing money to buy out a good chunk of Carlos Santana's contract. So some of these trades, I just, it, it, the thing with, with, with baseball trade, cause here's the thing. And I'm, uh, this is more about me. Basically when it comes to like free agency and trades, the MLB trades and free agent, I wouldn't say free agency, but their trades probably confuse me more than the NFLs and the NBAs mainly just because we see a lot that, you're sending a guy who's starting to get hot for two prospects who are not in the MLB all of a sudden. 
Uh, and that's it, it. It unfortunately is the nature of the game of baseball, and baseball is a bad business. Honestly, we see you see a lot of trades. You see it a lot more than you do in in other uh, leagues, and some that can downright not make sense. But they're you know looking for the future, and uh, you know seeing what they could do, build a uh, build from it from there. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Baseball's weird like that. I mean, you bear in mind way back when when the uh, Royals uh, traded away. Zach Greinke, uh, and in turn, as one part of the trade, I don't know if it was that trade specifically, but it was the same season. But in one season, they got Alcides Escobar, Lorenzo Cain, and Eric Hosmer. Or not Eric. Did they get Eric Hosmer? Or either Eric Hosmer or James Shields, one or the other. Um, and they were good. The Royals were good eventually. Um, but it takes time. And uh, I, the problem is, you know, with the with the Royals is that, you know, and you see this with a lot. I'm not saying that a lot of Royals fans are bandwagon fans, but you definitely saw that with the two-year stretch that they had. I guess you could call it a three-year stretch because in 2016, they didn't make the playoffs, but they were 500. Uh, so the three-year stretch that the Royals had where they were pretty dang good. Uh, and then, you know, no longer having the stars that led you to that mark being Mike Moustakis, Lorenzo Cain, Eric Hosmer, Cetus X, uh, Escobar. Uh, Wade Davis, Greg Holland, those kind of guys still have Salvador Perez, but he's been hit very hit and miss, uh, no pun intended. Um, which I know he's also battling through injury, but you know, it, it's just those instances where, you know, some of these trades really confuse me given that, especially with this one, how Santana was hot over the past month. And now they trade him away for two pitchers who aren't going to see MLB time, at least in the near future. And in turn, they pay Seattle $4.3 million to pay off the, the majority of Santana's contract. That's just the thing. And um, I know a lot uh, definitely agree with me here, or at least I'm assuming. <laughs> I say I know, but I, I'm honestly just assuming here. Uh, so basically, this uh, that's basically what I'm trying to get out to you guys is that you know, a lot of these baseball trades just confuse me. And, uh, you know, especially with this one, with uh, Carlos Santana. We'll see how the Royals can do moving forward. But like I said, uh, 27 and 47, uh, which is dead last in the AL Central, only by a game, though, or a game and a half, I should say, just behind Detroit, uh, by a game and a half. But I think, uh, like I said, they have the second worst record in the MLB. They have the second worst in the American League and the, actually the third worst in the MLB because the Cincinnati Reds have the second worst in the entire MLB. So third worst. So, yay, Royals are moving on up. No, I'm kidding. Because uh, <laughs> at one point they had the worst and now they're not quite. But uh, third worst out of 30 teams, so 27th, it's, um, it's still not great. Especially with a, you know, a division like the AL Central, it's not, I would say, out of the three divisions in the American League, the AL Central is the weakest. Um, well, maybe. I don't know. Cleveland's been decent. So is Chicago. But you you think about teams. New York, the New York Yankees are the hottest team in uh, in the entire country. Um, and are honestly, and I hate to say it, they're honestly my pick to win the World Series this year. Unless they choke somehow in the playoffs, which happens a lot. But, you know, we'll see. This is Lane Gillespie. We're going to have some more best of our CST trivia on the other end of this break. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017-1320. KLWN. Depend on it. 
Did you know that on our website, KLWN.com, as well as our sister stations, 1059kissfm.com, bull929.com, we have a program called Hometown Deals. So you click the tab, and it takes you to a magical place where gift cards are 50% off. We have handfuls of different restaurants and places that you can go to that you can get a 50% off gift card to. So just go to the website, click Hometown Deals, and you'll see some of those gift cards for 50% off. If you're a business and interested in being part of this as well and getting featured ads at no cash price and just gift card cost, shoot us an email, djohnson at gpmnow.com. Back for more. Derek Johnson here. I'm out on my vacation in Germany. I hope you're enjoying RCST without me here. Um, we've been doing these top 10 lists for plays for KU in their different NCAA tournament games and their different wins and specific KU plays um, that kind of led to the win. Obviously, as we've talked about, part of the list, it's it's not just the importance of the play. It's how cool the play was, how athletic it was, whatever. Everything that kind of goes into the top 10 list here. So we've gotten through the first three. The next one on the list is the Miami game in the Elite Eight. Let's get it started. Number 10. Tenth on the list was kind of the, it wasn't the dagger, because I consider the dagger like what basically put the nail in the coffin there at the end of the game. But this was the the last make of the game for KU. And this certainly was a fun one to officially close things out. KU's up 73-50, a little under 30 seconds to go. Shot clock's winding down. Jalen Coleman lands, is sizing up the defender. He's crossing him over. He's getting him on his back foot. Fires a three from a few feet behind the line at the right wing. Buries the three. It was a good display of shot making, but it was also, you know, fun as the as the last shot, the last kind of big celebration before the game officially ends of the game. That the number ten play against Miami. Number nine. Ninth on the list. Turnover by Miami. KU down two. Sixteen minutes to go in the second half. As you'd imagine, most of the top plays we're going to have here are in the second half with how great of a half that was for KU against Miami. Ochai grabs it off the steal, throws it up. Beautiful pass to Christian Brown. Catches in stride. Doesn't even have to dribble it. He goes up with two hands, throws down the flush, and then on top of it, as he's fallen to the ground, he smacks the floor, which, to be clear, not a fan of smacking the floor on defense, doing that thing that, like, Duke and, and stuff champion. But if you hit a dunk, and as you're falling to the ground, you hit the floor that way, that looks really cool. Christian Brown got it going. That tied it at 40, and the play that untied it is next on our list. Number eight. 40-40, 15 and a half to go. KU had not made a three to this point, so through 24 and a half minutes of play. Ochai's driving to the right. It's almost like the, the chop play, but there was less, um, I guess, contact or action around it. He just hands it off to Christian Brown, who's at the right wing, foot or two behind the three-point line, cocks and fires, knocks down the three, first three of the game for KU, gives him a lead at 43-40, and that is when the avalanche really started for KU over Miami. So that the number eight play because of importance, first three of the game. In terms of just Hey, it's a relatively open three. You know, that might not normally crack the top ten, but because of importance, it gets to number eight. Number seven. Seventh on the list for KU. Again, this is when the game was kind of uh, in hand for the Jayhawks. 68-49 the score, under four minutes to go. And Miami's just kind of pressing, trying to get steals, trying to create havoc. The ball gets worked over to Remy Martin, and and it's like a one-two-one where you got the guy at the top like trying to cover the, the cross pass, and then... You got the guy in front of him, kind of to the left. He kind of breaks by the one guy with a fake pass, then starts to drive on the other guy who's on his hip. He gets around to the three-point line at the left wing, throws up a running pass, and Mitch Lightfoot leaks behind the defense, throws down an alley-oop, 
again, that's that's not quite the dagger. It was probably before then, but it was the dagger after the dagger, uh, essentially there for KU, and, and certainly a fun highlight to watch. Number six. Sixth on the list. Here is a first-half one. KU down 26-25, four and a half minutes or so to go in the first half. We've talked about these plays. We, we had one with Creighton. We had one, um, I think, of the Providence game. Remy Martin drives it, gets up to the right elbow, again, stops when he has the defender on his back foot thinking he's going to drive to the rim, turns on a dime, spins, fades. This time it was actually very, this is probably the best contested one of any of those. It was contested pretty well by Miami, but he still hits it from the elbow, kind of off the, the odd foot and gives KU the lead at that time. He just continued to make tough and tough shots for KU during the NCAA tournament. Number five. Into the top five, KU down 38-36. Dewan Harris driving up. Somehow fits a pass into Ochag Baji at the left wing, who almost got it stolen, and he kind of spins on it as he catches it to avoid the steal, and then quickly throws it over to the left to Jalen Wilson in the corner. Wilson slips by one, gets into the lane, takes contact from the big man. Thought it should have been an and one, although maybe it was the call was he was vertical and in the restricted zone, which I guess that would actually make sense. But he gets bumped to the ground, knocked over, and he almost hits like a, a layup like over the side of his head. It's, it's a remarkable athletic effort from Jalen Wilson. Ties the game at 38, and it was a, a fun whirling dervis to watch. Number four. Fourth on the list, KU down 35-30 right at the start of the second half. It had been less than a minute into the second half. Miami's in transition. They try to throw like a lob up, and Jalen Wilson read it really well. He catches the ball on the steal, and he, as he's falling out of bounds after catching it, saves it in bounds to Christian Brown, who then passes it half court about and up to the left sideline to Dewan Harris. Dewan leaves a bounce pass to the right to David McCormick, McCormick catches and goes up for the one-handed jam. McCormick has a, a bunch of celebration to do after it. Honestly, it didn't look like he, he was able to dunk it by that much, but he just had enough to get there, and that was a perfect example of team effort. You had everybody playing into that. The only guy's name I didn't mention there was Ochai, and he played into it as well. Ochai immediately sprinted up the court and ran to the left corner, which drew some of the defense to allow Dave to get open. That was a full teamwork play and in at number four of KU's top 10 plays against Miami in the Elite Eight. Number three. Third on the list, KU up 59-46, little over seven minutes to go in the game. They get an inbound pass from the sideline near the bench to Dewan Harris, who catches it kind of cutting in from the right side. And Dewan ends up doing a, um, oh, I forget, it's a uh, reverse layup. Uh, I wanted to say up and under, but that's kind of a misconception. Up and under is kind of like a fake. You get them to jump by and then you, you shoot it. It was, a, it was a reverse layup where he goes under the hoop, does the reverse layup, and somehow gets it to go. And they show it again on like the, the side angle. It's, it's amazing how he even had the angle to be able to do that. And the ball comes out, I mean, milliseconds away from his feet landing where it would have been a travel. Pretty impressive ambidex or uh, flexibility, I guess, for uh, Dewan Harris. Into the top two we go, though. Number two. KU up 51-42. This one, again, we, I, I keep mentioning dagger talk. Like, this wouldn't be the dagger because there were still 10 minutes to go. But this was kind of the, um, I guess, chef's kiss, kiss of, the, of the meal that was provided by the KU Avalanche to start the second half. They're up by nine, 10 minutes to go. KU gets out in transition. Ochai tries to take it kind of one-on-one. Tough layup. He was going so fast that it was tough to finish. The layup just pops out. But great effort by Jalen Wilson. He soars in, grabs the rebound through, like, three Miami defenders, and all in one motion, he's grabbing the rebound, he's falling out of bounds, 
He's saving it inbounds, gets it into the corner just as Ochai is reestablishing himself inbounds. So it's kind of like a, a trust factor. Of, I'm going to throw it where I think you're going to be as well. Ochai grabs it off one bounce, fires the three, knocks down the three. Um, I think that was Ochai's first three of the game. It extends the lead to 12. Great hustle play, great all-around play. And like I said, that was really the big moment where it was like, oh, Miami's done here. Number one. Top play from the KU Miami suite or uh, Elite Eight, though, comes for KU with about 14 and a half to go. KU up 45-40. Ochag Baji grabs a rebound, throws a baseball pass up ahead to Jalen Wilson, catches it, contested at the elbow. Jalen tries to spin in, take a tough layup. It doesn't go. Dave, though, gets his hands on it a couple times. He eventually comes down with the rebound, takes contact from two guys, gets, like, knocked to the ground. It, it looks like he's, like, four feet tall by the time the ball comes out of his hand because he's getting, like, scrunched to the ground because he's getting knocked down. And he somehow still has the strength to bank it in, high-arcing off the window. He has a fun little crab walk celebration that got the bench going. That was such a momentum play. It was an awesome play to watch, and it was a unique play. At that. So that is the top 10 from the KU Elite 8 win over Miami. We just have top 10s for the Villanova game, the North Carolina game to go as far as the NCAA tournament ride. More top 10s to get to as well. I'm Derek Johnson. Back to you guys or commercial, whatever's going to happen. Enjoy. We are brought to you by Homefield Apparel. Homefield, a premium collegiate apparel brand out of Indianapolis, has incredibly comfortable, officially licensed apparel with vintage college designs because they dig through the archives of your school to find unique logos, mascots, and moments. The Kansas Collection has 14 pieces of apparel, including T-shirts, hoodies, crewnecks, and they are some of the most comfortable things that you will wear, plus they look really cool. And they just released, well, not just, but after the national championship, they released a national championship shirt. Use the code ROCKCHALKSPORTSTALK. That's ROCKCHALKSPORTSTALK, all one word, and you'll get 15%, 15% off your first order. That's right. Code Rock Chalk Sports Talk, all one word for 15% off with home field apparel on your first order. Hello, Lane again. It's uh, 20 past the hour. It's Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017 1320 KLWN. It's a pretty popular uh, tennis tournament going on right now. You may have heard of it. Probably one of the most, if not the most prestigious. That's Wimbledon. So the Wimbledon tournament's going on right now. Well, they're not going on right now, right now. The day's done uh, because it's dark over in uh, in the UK, in Great Britain. Uh, so not not quite going on right now, right now. But I digress. Um, already some very interesting matchups uh, that have gone on so far. Um, one of which yesterday, um, and one that I really paid attention to, was uh, Serena Williams' return. Uh, to center court for the uh, for the Wimbledon tournament, but ha- uh, unfortunately she lost uh, in the first round uh, against Harmony Tan. She lost in three sets. Uh, it was uh, and and by the way, it, it's very interesting how how um how this can work because Serena won more games than Harmony did in this match, but Serena still lost, and the reason is because. Harmony Tan won seven five in set one, and Serena won six to one in set two. So we were thinking, okay, all eyes now on Serena. She's gonna 
blow Harmony Tan out of the water. But then he came back, uh, went six to six, uh, which means because the final set's the tiebreaker, and Harmony Tan won that tiebreaker ten to seven. So Harmony Tan moves on, and Serena Williams' return comes to a pretty early close. Some other matchups that have gone on. Uh, one of the favorites to win, actually the favorite to win in the men's division, uh, Novak Djokovic. Man, dude's on another level. Like I just don't, <laughs> I just don't understand how he's just so dang good. And I know, you know, we were thinking about, you know, uh, Derek and I a few weeks ago. We kind of made the joke of like how how old a lot of these tennis stars are in their like late thirties, early forties, maybe into fifties. And we're just thinking, man, how in the world are their legs just still operating? Because I, I, I got to tell you, I don't envy tennis players. That you know, it is, it is gru- not gruesome, but it is. Um, gosh, it really takes a toll on your body and especially on your legs. Um, so that's I, I'm just surprised by how many people can succeed, uh, so often. So. Uh, I believe Djokovic had a match yesterday or two days ago. I'm trying to look for that. It's still the first round of the Wimbledon tournament. Uh, Roger Federer won in uh, four sets. Uh, That was yesterday. Um, One notable match that came up today is the last notable match, I'll say. So Andy Murray, he was not the favorite to to win uh, the matchup uh, against John Eisner, uh, the American, who's ranked 20th. Andy Murray, the... Uh, the man from Great Britain, so he was uh, in front of his home crowd, was not projected to win. He's not ranked. Uh, but I got to say, um, you know, tennis matches are meant to be like really calm, cool, collected. Um, but Andy Murray, gosh, he was firing up the crowd time and time again. Unfortunately for him, he lost. He lost in four sets. Um, 6-4 in set one, lost 7-6 off the tiebreaker in set two. He did win the third set, uh, 7-6 in the tiebreaker. He won that one 7-3. But lost 6-4 in the fourth and final set, and uh, John Eisner moves on. So, basically looking up uh, uh, the odds to win Wimbledon. Like I mentioned, Novak Djokovic um, was the front runner to win it all on the, or he is the front runner to uh, win it all on the uh, on the men's front. He's still alive, obviously. Um, but right behind him is Rafael Nadal, definitely just creeping up on him and definitely has a shot. Now, Andy Murray, who lost, and by the way, today was the second round. I was backwards on that. The last couple of days of the first round, today was the beginning of the second round. Anyway, Andy Murray was sixth on that list, the sixth favorite to win Wimbledon. However, he lost in the second round. So it, it kind of shows, you know, um, even experienced guys in tennis can really fall to the younger guys, just given how tough of a sport tennis can really be and what effect that has on age. At the same time, you know, like I said, Wimbledon, one of the more prestigious, if not the most prestigious um, tennis outings uh, ever. Um, You know, we'll see a lot of rising stars. Like, uh, for instance, um, you know, like, uh, it wasn't Coco Goff a couple of years ago. That was more the U.S. Open or something like that. But uh, I know that she definitely made a lot of strides in the uh, in the women's front in Wimbledon at the very least. Um, Serena Williams was one of the favorites to win it all on her return. However, like I mentioned, she uh, she fell in the uh, first round, unfortunately lost, and uh, is um, not moving on. So her Wimbledon days are done. So um, figured I'd share a little bit of a Wimbledon update for you guys. Uh, you know, like I said... 
uh, one of the more prestigious uh, tennis tournaments and uh, one of the more exciting. Um, but I will say a downfall, uh, you know, if you want to watch all day, well, they started about five o'clock in the morning local time. So good luck with that. Because the, the days end local time at around or local time here, I mean, not local time in, in the UK, local time here. Um, here, it's about 3.30, which is about 8.30 or 9.30 uh, in the UK. That's about... Um, that's uh that's about sunset or the end of the day in the UK so you know it has to end early you know here in the states so you know if you're a tennis fan you got to wake up early to uh to watch the uh to watch Wimbledon which you know more power to you um but I'll obviously I'll put it on as much as I can because uh Wimbledon one of the more prestigious you really see a lot of rising stars in that and you see a lot of uh stars regardless uh perform to the best of their abilities in one of the most prestigious um venues there are this is Rock Chalk Sports Talk. Going to take another break and have some more best of RCST trivia for you right after this. This is Lane Gillespie with Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017, 1320, KLWN. Bend on it. <laughs> 